Tonight I'd like to continue on the theme of ecology, the ecology of inner beauty and well-being, meaning the interrelationship of the virtuous qualities within our hearts and the world around us. When people reflect on the ten paramis that we've been studying during this, these past days, usually there's a question, why isn't compassion there? Where is compassion? Compassion such a, an important part of Buddhist teachings. So it's said that actually great compassion is the proximate cause for all of these qualities to be developed. Without compassion, there wouldn't be the intention for all the Buddhas to be, for human beings like ourselves, to even go towards the development of these qualities, these ten paramis. It's also said that as each of these paramis are developed, it's accompanied by, each one is accompanied by compassion. For example, true uh, and deep generosity would not be developed if it weren't for compassion. Compassion is always there, along with all of the other qualities. It's also said that in addition to compassion, skillful means accompanies each one of these qualities. Uh, An ability for the mind to understand how to carry these out, not just to think about them, not just to have them in the mind as an intention, but to put them in action, to connect that inner world with the outer world. It's also said that each parami is untainted by craving. In other words, untainted by wanting anything for oneself or the other other than the alleviation of suffering for that person. Also untainted by conceit or the wrong view of self. If not for compassion, we would not be receiving these uh, teachings today. It said that during the time when the uh, Buddha was enlightened under the Bodhi tree, There was a thought for a while that the teachings and the understandings that he came to understand very profoundly, maybe it wasn't possible to deliver them, to share them with others. But he was prevailed upon by uh, a being in the Brahma realm, it said. And this being said, there are beings in the world with little dust in their eyes. There are beings in the world with little dust in their eyes, meaning that these beings would be able to really understand the teachings that he would be offering and be able to carry them out in the world. And they were carried uh, through his teachings because of his great compassion, because of his karuna. Karuna means compassion. By his maha karuna, Maha means great. So tonight I'd like to put particular emphasis on compassion and actually speak about the, compa- the ecology of compassion, the interrelationship of compassion coming from our hearts and how it affects the world and how the world affects our compassion. We're born into this life, in this plane of existence, of great vulnerability. We come to see this when we get quiet in retreats like this, or when we're out in nature, or we have some time alone when we're not distracted by our to-do list or the responsibilities that we rightly have to take care of in the world. We come to see that we're so vulnerable because of change, Any little thing changes in in our environment, and there is a ripple that goes on in our hearts. We see that conditions are constantly changing. 
it's not easy to take this in. We come to see this in a way that just reaches so deeply into our hearts, into our bodies, into our minds when we're here in the quiet, in the solitude. We see conditions changing in the bodies, in our bodies. We see conditions changing in the world around us, uh, political, environmental, economic conditions. And this makes us feel unstable, of course. It doesn't allow us sometimes to really settle into a very deep quiet. When we look at our own minds, when we're sitting here, quietly. Our own minds and our hearts are constantly changing. The mind is so fickle. In one moment it wants that brownie and it wants another brownie. (laughs) And then it doesn't take too long after that where we say, why did we eat that extra piece of brownie? You know, it's just going back and forth of wanting and not wanting and feeling comfortable and not feeling comfortable. There's always conditions around us that uh, bring this kind of vulnerability outside of us, inside of us. And maybe it's not so comfortable, but it's a good thing that we see how often we just react in a habitual way towards these changing conditions. Uh, We react in ways that bring more suffering to ourselves and to others. So there's this constant vulnerability that we're living within that's happening inside our hearts, outside of our hearts. This is the reality of life. This is how it is. Uh, People say, well, sometimes, why are you coming to this retreat? Why shouldn't you be out there helping the world, doing what you can? Well, of course we do that also. But when we come into a place like this and it's quiet and we have some time to really reflect on important things in life, we come to see uh, just how, how precious it is to have this human birth, to be able to ponder on things that we aren't able to do when we're so busy in our lives, to be able to see how much courage we actually have to face this reality, to be able to sit here and to see how much pain the body goes through and the heart goes through and the mind does this and that all the time in its habitual ways, and to actually open to it takes a tremendous amount of courage. It's no small thing what we're doing. And when we go out into the world and we're able to face the same things going on in the world, we bring forth that kind of courage, the ability to open to whatever is going on out there in the same way that we can open to our own hearts. It's said that compassion is facing reality with a wise and kind heart, facing reality with courage. In an old journal um, that I had come across some years ago, that I had written many years before that, I found a passage where I'd written about an ever-present quiet desperation that I had, which led me to the Dharma, that I, I just felt this, what I described as a quiet desperation. I could go through my life, yes, all right, but I just felt like there was something more. There was something more than just surviving in the world. There's something more that the heart wanted to open to. Manindraji translated that quiet desperation to spiritual urgency. It was really urged me to look deep, more deeply into my own heart, into the truth of life. And there's a word for spiritual urgency in uh, the Pali language, and that is samvega, samvega, spiritual urgency. Now, each one of us here has some degree of spiritual urgency, or we wouldn't be here. It's what we all have in common as we come to a place like this, to conditions like this. I asked him at the time, 
what's the meaning of my life? I was in my 20s at the time, and I, I wanted to desperately know what is the meaning of my life. Sure, I could follow along what society asked me to do, and I, I took great responsibility to do that. I was very respectful of that, and I, I think I did that with great care. But I wanted to know what is the true meaning of my life. What am I here to do? And he answered very straightforwardly and without any hesitation, you're here to develop wisdom and compassion. That's your purpose in life, to develop wisdom and compassion. And I took that to mean that that's the purpose of everyone's life, really, um, if we want to look even a little bit more deeply. So compassion is that ability to face reality with courage. It takes a lot of courage to open to what's really going on. Being able to connect with what's difficult within us, what's really challenging to open to around us, with a heart that can say, this is how it is. It doesn't mean that we condone it. It doesn't mean that we're saying it's good. But if we're just resisting it and kind of having complaints about it all the time, we're not really opening to it. We're just going through the habitual pattern of um, having aversion and whinging and whining about it. So it takes humility, a lot of humility, to just say, all right, can I just open my heart to this? I don't have to be wrong or right. Can I just open my heart to this experience, to this condition inside of me, outside of me? That's why we're doing this training together. I think all of us realize that in the various communities that we're connected with, there's a growing sense of urgency to do this to actually open our hearts, but at the same time to help, to offer our gifts, however insignificant we think they may be, to offer our gifts to touch the world with kindness, to touch the world with a kind of support, even if it's just one-to-one, or that it doesn't mean, it's, I'm not saying just one-to-one, because that's basically what we do. We help a person one at a time, society one at a time. I know that I feel that the world is increasing in complexity and speed far beyond my ability to keep up with it. Just in terms of having a computer, I feel like I'm in the dinosaur age still. You know, I can, I can kind of navigate my way through, but um, I need a lot of help. And I still like to write letters by hand <laughs> and use the, um, you know, put a stamp on it and, you know, put it next to my heart and then put it in the mailbox. I want to touch the world with slowing down and with simplicity. And when we come to do something like this or take a walk in nature during the day or just to walk down our street underneath the trees and touch the leaves and the trees as we go by. It's a great help. It's a great balance to what's going on in the world. This is a, a lot of compassion that we can have for what's going on. Those really simple things that seem to be unseen, unrecognized, So equally as strong as doing whatever we can in the world, uh, there's also an urgency to go within. There's uh, a lot of sign-ups for retreats these days. It seems like when the economy goes down, and when it's economically harder for people to pay for a retreat, there are more sign-ups for retreat. And there's a wait list, a lot more wait lists nowadays than there were before. So there's an urgency to go within, deep within, to that place of just acknowledging that inner landscape and not ignoring it, 
not ignoring the inner <coughs> landscape. We're so pulled to the outer things of the world. It takes great compassion to just do that, to touch our hearts, like to bring that connection, that physical uh, and mental and heartfelt connection to the heart center is a great act of compassion when we do that even for 15 minutes at the beginning of our metta practice when I guide all of us to just come connect with your heart a little bit. How often do we do that in, in our lives? Just as an act of compassion for myself almost every evening and especially during times of uh, great challenge for me in, in the world with my family and with the, with the responsibilities I have in the world, I will often lay down in the afternoon or in the evening and I'll just put one hand on my heart and one hand on my belly and just breathe and pay attention to that and offer metta to myself and then offer it out just by doing that one act. And so it's no small thing to pay attention to compassion, to nourishing the heart in that way. When we bring our attention to that inner landscape, to not just nourish it by bringing physical and mental attention to our hearts, but we know what's going on there, bringing awareness there is kind of going deeper than just placing the hand on the heart. It's by acknowledging, I see the pain in this heart. It's just like, you know, it's, it's when you face somebody who's going through some great difficulty and all you do is acknowledge. You don't have to have any kind of fix it in response. Uh, you just say, I, as much as I can, I understand how you're feeling. Or you just repeat what they're saying. Oh, I hear you're saying and I feel your pain, whatever that pain is. I mean, that in itself, that act is so needed in this world. We need to form these wholesome habit patterns that can easily go there. And that's why we do the metta practice, so that those ways of speaking to ourselves and to the world become easy for us. We're not, it's not so easy for us in this society to come across somebody and to say, I wish you goodness, I wish you goodwill. And uh, I mean, we say things kind of like in a polite way, all the best to you. Well, what does that mean? You know, sometimes I say, can you fill that out a little bit more? <laughs> what do you really mean by that? In, in, you know, not just being polite, but to say, if we can say something with more authenticity, this is an act of compassion. So when we practice the Brahma-viharas, those four uh, beautiful emotions that we uh, are practicing when we come to uh, a retreat, we learn these things and we bring it home. Loving-kindness is one, compassion is another, uh, sympathetic joy is the third one, and equanimity is the fourth Brahma-vihara. Brahma-vihara means abode. It means like a high abode, divine abode. So we learn new habit patterns, inclining the heart towards goodwill, towards uh, opening to suffering, which compassion is, towards opening to joy, which is really hard sometimes, and uh, having a balance in, in our openness of heart so we're not closing down when somebody's joyful, too joyful and we don't like it, or when somebody's in too much pain and it's hard for us to open to that. And we need equanimity also. It's a purification process, as I mentioned in the metta practice this afternoon. When we open our hearts in any way, even when we're practicing the Brahma-viharas, it purifies us because what it does is it, it weakens those 
unwholesome states of mind. It brings them up and it weakens them because we're developing the wholesome, the opposite. And when we put light and energy into the wholesome qualities, the unwholesome qualities just fall by the wayside. We don't give them energy. We don't make the habit of fueling them, using whatever um, energy that we use to fuel them in our lives. So when we see what happens when we do the practices of the Brahma Viharas, when ill will comes up, for example, and uh, attachment comes up in the practice of metta, we see what's going on in our hearts. One of my colleagues uh, who teaches metta also says um, that we cannot really practice loving kindness without practicing mindfulness because we need to be mindful of whatever comes up in our practice. And indeed, we are being mindful of metta. So when these uh, opposite qualities come up, like ill will, hatred, aversion, and also attachment, craving, the opposites of metta, uh, they come up to be seen. And then when we practice uh, metta, they're let go of. So we see what the underpinnings of our personality are when we do these practices. Uh, That's why they're also called purification practices. As Mark Twain said, uh, self-knowledge is not always good news. You know, when you see what comes up, it's like cringing, a lot of cringing moments when I do these practices sometimes, but not all the time. I often repeat this, quote by Agnes Au that was in a writing she offered to the Shambhala Sun. And this was where uh, Buddhist women of color were highlighted. And she talks about exposing the underpinnings of our personality when we do uh, this practice, these practices. She said, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace, and in so doing, to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life. The vividness of an unfiltered life. If we look carefully, we see that a lot of our practice is um, submerged in ignorance. A lot of our uh, mind and heart is submerged under ignorance ignoring what's going on underneath the, the layers of our hearts. And the, the practice is um, intentionally, it, it is done to open and to um, unveil those layers so that we can see what's pushing and pulling us and really work on the purification, the weakening and the purification and the uprooting of those underpinnings that cause a lot of suffering to ourselves and to others. So we discover what the habitual forces of the mind and heart are. This is what's actually supposed to happen in our practice. People often come at the beginning of a practice, the practice in the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, thinking that I'm going to go there and I'm going to experience a lot of calm and a lot of bliss and a lot of beauty and I'm just going to be blissed out. But we found just the opposite, right? (laughs) I know we found moments of bliss too. But we're still coming. We're still coming to the practice. Why? Because we know that we're really understanding the truth of life. And deep down underneath all that misunderstanding, of that uh, we need to have this bliss and this calm all the time. We truly know what we need to discover. So we learn what makes up this inner terrain, and we learn what this inner, what the effect of this inner terrain has on the outer terrain. We come to see that there's all the time in almost every retreat I've been in, there's a, a life review. There's some part of my life that 
kind of comes to uh, comes to the surface, and I start reviewing. Oh, this happened then. It's not psychological. It's more like just um, an admittance of oh, this is what happened, and this is what my heart, how my heart responded at that time, and not blaming myself or castigating myself, but just seeing this is the truth of my heart. And this is the habit pattern that's still playing out, even in small ways. And I clearly see this is not a good thing. It's not about being a bad person. It's just about seeing clearly this is something that needs to be worked with, that needs to be weakened, where new habit patterns need to be formed around this. So we come to see and understand what creates disharmony? What habit patterns keep coming up that are continually bringing disharmony in my life? And what creates harmony? We also acknowledge that. What, what creates harmony and disharmony on an individual level and also on a societal level? We incline our minds towards nourishing what creates harmony and we uh, turn away from, we don't give energy to those qualities of mind, those habits that cause disharmony. What, the, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that his or her mind will incline, as the Buddha said. Now when you're sitting there and you're not doing the metta practice, what does your mind incline to? Place that with meta phrases. I mean, I tell you, I would rather be sitting there and repeating those meta phrases rotely than sometimes seeing what comes up in my mind, the sentences that come up. You would not believe sometimes. <laughs> if there could be a screen behind my head and, you know, that was just flickering what was going on you would think, wow, that's our teacher? <laughs> I mean, the big thing that's happened over the years is there's not as much identification with it. It's like just old movies playing. But still, you know, at least a lot of those things don't come out of the mouth anymore. It's just like, wow, <laughs> where did that come from? So if you think that Oh, this practice of metta is so rote. Think about it. it. You'd rather probably, if you could see what your mind was like, the, the lights that come on in your mind, the, the purity in your own mind, when there's just even that rote uh, saying of all of those phrases. It's, it's much more pure than when we just let things come up and we're not being mindful of them. So, of course, we also see the, those forces that create unrest, distress, disharmony, fear on an individual level, within us, on a societal level. And we start to have this urgency, that spiritual urgency to relinquish that, to weaken those patterns, to replace the words that habitually come up in our minds with other words. I do see, I have to admit, that I do see uh, more beautiful words spontaneously coming out of my mind and, and heart and mouth uh, than I did 10 years ago, than 20 years ago. And look, look at your own life. You can see that even the, the improvement or the, the greater beauty that comes out of your being compared to 10 years ago, if you've been on the path this long. Of course, it's hard to see this distress, this ill will that comes up. But it's so essential to doing this practice, to, being, to having the, the humility and the courage 
to open to all of that. Because if we don't understand the suffering in our own hearts, and we don't see that as suffering, then we'll really never understand it in others. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, until you understand the meaning of suffering, there will still be a measure of hypocrisy to your own compassion. Compassion is opening to suffering in ourselves and in others. It's opening to distress. It's opening to unrest, to the ways of the world, to all the ill will and rage and hatred. It's opening to that. It's also opening to the ignorance of, that's displayed by some of the so-called leaders of our world. This is the hardest thing to have compassion for, to have compassion for the ignorance that's displayed. We often look at that ignorance and we, then we complain about it and we don't see our own aversion. We don't see our own rage. So think about that. You know, when somebody's displaying ignorance and just realize how much suffering that is, how much covering in their own heart, how thick the covering is of their own heart and mind, the layers of not understanding how things really are. So you could say, in short, that the Buddha's teaching is about developing and nurturing what creates harmony and goodwill. Number one. And number two is disarming what is harmful in our own minds and hearts. So nurturing what creates harmony, disarming what creates disharmony. And the third part of that is from these two, the natural potential for liberating wisdom can arise. These two are the basis. And so important to develop the heart, the Brahma-viharas, as we do in metta. Important also to develop wisdom. So without this ability to face, open, and touch the suffering within our own hearts, within the inner landscape, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the outer landscape of the world, on what's happening in the suffering of the world. Granted, with our practice, we may not radically change the whole world, but we can change what's going on in our own hearts. The greatest disarmament, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, is the disarmament of cruelty and attachment and craving and ignorance in our own hearts. That's where the disarmament has to take place. When we do that, it sends ripples out into the world. And it, it sends ripples out into the world in ways that are exponential. So the practice we're doing here has tremendous compassion involved in it to actually do our mindfulness practice, to do our metta practice for ourselves and to others, included in all that, has a lot of compassion, deep compassion. Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right. It just stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts. And that's where we really have an effect. That's where we really have some measure of influence and, and some measure of control. Not complete control, as we can see, but we have some great influence on our own hearts. I mean, many of you have children or, or young ones that you've raised. And my eldest is in her 40s, youngest in her 30s. And I can see, compared to the influences of the world, I have about that much influence on them. You know, it's just like I did the best I could, and I'm still doing it. Um, but I just see that even my own children, I don't have control over. <laughs> and when I look at what's going in my own heart, yeah, it just does its thing. Um, 
fortunately, you know, there's some training there and it still continues. So how does compassion come about? I was remembering um, an incident when I wrote this uh, talk that some years ago, I was um, as angry as I could ever remember I'd gotten because someone mistreated one of my loved ones, a child. And I was, I was so full of anger, and I just didn't know what to do. I mean, I, I could see myself. Um, I wouldn't act it out, because uh, I, 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 I just don't have that in me to act it out. But I was so angry that I, I could see myself kind of spitting on the person and um, you know shouting at the person. <coughs> so I went through this anger, and then um, I had gone to help that person um, when sh that person was on the mainland and I was on Maui. And in some quiet moment, this person told me, you know, he was treated that way when he was younger. That's the way his life went when he was younger. And all of a sudden, just to see the connection of what went on in his life, and I, I, I connected the anger I had in my heart with the anger that he must have had and just all the distress that was going on in this person's heart. It's those two things that came together because I was able to open to my own anger and open to that person's anger. And when those two came together, I really felt compassion. It was the opening, the ability, the courage to open to it that helped a great deal. And it was the ability to say, yes, there's anger here and there's anger there. And I didn't deny the anger in my own heart. So I couldn't deny the, the anger in that person's heart. And it gave me tremendous compassion for that person. So those feelings of wanting to you know, hurt that person by words or by my behavior, it just fell away in that moment. I don't condone what that person did. And it's gone. It's, years passed already. Uh, and in times after that, I've had connections with that person that are very, um, they're fine, they're, they're connecting, they're, they're not full of, you know, kind of mushy, loving kindness, but they're full of compassion in that connection. So we see our own pain. When we see our own pain, we can see the pain of others. So it, it doesn't make those atrocities stop in our own hearts, but uh, in, in the world, but it stops more in our own hearts. And that has an effect. That has an effect. From that experience, it was a turning point, because from that place of knowing that this is possible, this is possible for this opening to a great distress in my own heart and opening to that in another person's heart, it could happen again. I could do it another time. And so when I go to Burma and understand and know what the military are doing behind the scenes, behind you know the pretty landscape that there is there, the niceties that there are there, when I know that, and I, I see a lot, I understand and know a lot of what's happening behind the scene. My heart can have compassion for that ignorance, for the cruelty that may be played out. But it, it doesn't mean that I condone it. We do everything we can. Indeed, the most subversive thing that we can do is educate the children. And so that's what we're doing, helping the children to have schools to have education there. So 
compassion is such an important part. It brings about this, this intention to be generous, this intention to help, this intention to renounce the greed, hatred, and delusion in my own heart so I can help that in the world, the greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. It feeds a lot of the paramis that we're discovering in ourselves how to develop. The great German monk who lived in Sri Lanka for a long time and did many of the important translations of the Pali texts, this is the venerable Nyanaponika. He said that these practices, in particular the practice of compassion, cleanses and strengthens the mind and the heart awakens dormant potentials and results in the spiritual transmutation of the personality. Now since I've been practicing and, and teaching for um, practicing for 35, 37 years and teaching for about 20 something now, I've seen a lot of change in people. And it's pretty amazing. I was just thinking today of uh, somebody that um, came close to my heart and remembering a few years ago just the personality of this person, how difficult it was for me to, to be around it. And now just with more and more practice, how gentle that person is, how kind of words of wisdom come, comes out of that person's mouth so spontaneously. And I think, wow, he's really done a lot of practice. You know, and indeed, it's so. So when we do the practice of developing goodwill, it's the basis for developing uh, compassion. When we do metta practice, when we do metta practice, it's developing basic goodwill towards ourselves and towards others. It's kind of the neutral ground, developing basic goodwill. When that goodwill turns and faces suffering, that's when metta transforms into compassion. It automatically does that. Probably you found in your metta practice that you bring somebody up, you're doing your metta practice, and you're going along with a dear friend uh, offering metta, and all of a sudden you remember that this dear friend is going through some suffering. And then you feel something different come up in your heart. It's not, this, it's not kind of a neutrality of goodwill, but there's a quivering in your heart, which is one of the aspects of compassion. There's kind of a quivering in your heart that happens it automatically, metta will automatically turn to compassion when it turns towards the suffering of oneself or another person. So that's why we begin with loving kindness. We begin with goodwill. And then that steady strength of goodwill uh, gains more and more power. And we're able to offer that compassion and metta towards people who are really difficult in our lives, very, very difficult. That's why we start with easy, easy persons first. I, uh, years ago, there was an interaction between myself and the neighbor, and it's fine now, <laughs> I want to say. <laughs> but years ago, Steve and I were, um, about to make a road coming from a piece of our land down to another piece of our land, because we kind of have two pieces that we were going to connect. And it was going to go right by the neighbor's land. And that neighbor did not want us to make that road. We, uh, eventually, we never made that road. Uh, and so this person was irate. And she came to the house to our house one day, and Steve wasn't there. And I think it was in Burma, actually, and boy, I needed protection. She came in the house, she was started out quiet, but she ended up just yelling at the top of her lungs to me, because she did not want that road next to her house, and she felt that it was gonna invade her privacy, and um, 
she wasn't going to. Oh, that's a funny sound. Are you hearing me back there? Okay. So um, when she was yelling and screaming at me, I felt like yelling and screaming back. I, I, I really did. I'm almost like, I almost punched her. <laughs> Shut up. You know, but, <laughs> but I practiced restraint. And so, <laughs> I mean, I felt like it, but that, that could actually not come out of my being. <laughs> um, but I, I really felt like I had to protect myself or I had to stop her or something. But there was a moment when I really saw her suffering. Like, I don't know where that suffering came from, where, where she had to be so strong and telling me, don't make that road. But it was really painful in her own heart. And when I opened to that, then I could feel compassion for her. Instead of just, it's all about me, you know, and I need to be protected. Of course I did need to be protected. I did ask her to stop. But uh, we, we went on in our conversation, and it settled down. And um, we ended up not doing the road, and there was more harmony, and we had to find other ways of doing it. But um, because of the first incident that happened way, way years before that, then when this happened, it kind of made a pathway in my heart to where, oh, that could happen again. As I look back, I saw that it entered that pathway where it knew that it could do that. And so I was able to open to compassion in the face of all that, in, a fa- in the face of being attacked, really. So another quote by the, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says that genuine compassion is based on a clear acceptance or recognition that others like oneself, want happiness and have a right to overcome suffering. So on the basis of that, some kind of concern about the welfare of others happens irrespective of their attitude. So irrespective of the attitude of the generals in Burma and of the neighbors we have right nearby, and sometimes of our own children during you know early years when they're going through their hormonal stage and they're doing things that are not nice you know towards their parents can we can we have compassion for them the sanskrit and pali word for, for compassion i mentioned before is karuna and trungpa rinpoche says that he translates that to noble heart, noble heart. And why? Why does he use the word noble? Because when we have compassion, we're really able to open to the four noble truths, and in particular, the first noble truth of suffering. If we don't, didn't have compassion, the first noble truth of suffering would not, we would not be able to even start on that path towards the end of suffering. The basic tenets of the Buddhist teaching are these four noble truths. First, to open to the reality of the truth of suffering and to see the cause of suffering and to understand deeply, to realize the end of suffering and to know what the path is towards the end of suffering. We wouldn't be able to do that if we didn't have compassion. So compassion is so essential to actually coming to the end of suffering because we first have to open to it. We feel the quivering of the heart in response to betrayal, in response to being hurt intentionally or unintentionally, in in response to growing old and to sickness, to death. We feel the quivering of the heart. And what is that telling us when there is this quivering? It tells us that my heart is alive. It's not dead. It's open. It's, it's like facing life. It's, it has life. 
it's able to move with the movement of life. So we feel this quivering of the heart. And it means that it's activating something. It's activating some kind of energy so that we can act in the world. Or maybe it's to not act in that moment because that's the appropriate thing to do that will bring about harmony. It's a movement of the hearts towards what's painful in order to alleviate it. It's interesting that uh, they found when they've, uh, they've done all this research on the brain and, and uh, what happens when there's compassion going on, what happens when there's anger going on. The same place in the brain, the same place in the brain that's activated when somebody is taking action in the world, is wanting to move in the world, is the same place in the physical brain that lights up when somebody's doing compassion practice. They've tested this on those monks that have done like, what is it, 10,000 hours? 10,000 hours of practice. They've uh, asked them to do compassion practice and see what happens, what part of the brain lights up. So they find that the same part that kind of wants to act, uh, wants to take action, is the same part of the brain that is doing compassion practice. So it's the quivering, the quivering of the heart. Some of you may be familiar with uh, the green Tara. You know, the, in the uh, Tibetan tradition, there are these Taras. And uh, this Tara is a, a compassionate uh, female example of compassion in the world. And the green Tara has her right foot out. It's ready to step. And in, that means that it's ready to act. And this is the compassionate Tara, the compassionate movement of the heart, this readiness to act. So it manifests as an offering of kindness rather than withdrawal. Because sometimes when there's cruelty in the world, we either want to strike out or we want to hold back out of fear or out of, I don't want to be involved in that. We want to connect because we don't feel a separation between oneself and the other. So I want to talk about the far and near enemy about compassion. The near enemy of compassion is despair, that kind of despair that weakens us when we see the cruelty in the world or when we see the suffering in the world in general that kind of despair that makes us feel helpless, that we can't act. There's not that quivering that's ready to do something or that's ready to kind of figure out how can we help. It's an unhealthy kind of grief. Sometimes it's manifested as pity for others or pity for oneself. It's kind of drowning in the despair. So in that time, there's no clarity, there's no balance, there's no courage, no wisdom can arise. The closing down of the heart and the mind takes it to more of delusion. It just cover it up, pretend it's not there, uh, kind of like a head in the sand about it. So <clears throat> when, when we're like this, we really can't do anything. There is a kind of, it's kind of a very weak stance in the world in this, uh, when we're feeling this despair and this uh, near enemy. It's called the near enemy of compassion because it can seem like compassion, but it really isn't. We're just too weak to do anything about it in a clear way, in a courageous way. Um, but the far enemy sometimes is more prevalent. It's more something that we see more closely. And the far enemy is cruelty. It's when we want to strike out because we don't like what's going on. It's that impulse I had to kind of, you know, stop. Um, the impulse may be there sometimes, but we catch it and we don't put it in action. 
and we just let it kind of subside until we can feel that true compassion coming up. So the opposite, the direct opposite of compassion is cruelty. When we want to strike out, we don't like what's going on. It's a form of aversion. So we have to watch out for this, this form of aversion, this form of cruelty. And sometimes we can, we want to do something for the world, but we're just so fired up that we can't. In some of these uh, retreats and, and um, uh, times that the Dalai Lama has taught people who are environmentalists and those who are fighting for the freedom of Tibet, uh, there have been people that have come up and said with great ardor and kind of with anger behind all the ardor, I want to help, I want to do all that I can, I want to wipe this, you know, the, the opposite uh, people out that are causing all the harm to Tibet or help in the ecology or the environment of Tibet. And he says, wait, wait until your heart is more settled because now this is the opposite of compassion. It's more the cruelty part of your heart that's acting out. There's not enough equanimity in the time, at this time. So, understanding the near and the far enemy is really important because we see it in our own hearts all the time. When we see it in our own hearts, then we can really understand with compassion why it's out there in the world, how it manifests in the world. I came across this beautiful story about uh, it's called Life Lessons. And this is with Martin Luther King telling the story of a ride that he had with his brother in a, in a car going to Chattanooga, Tennessee from Atlanta. And the story says it all really about compassion and how we can be in the world. Without compassion, we strike out at something we feel uncomfortable about or something we don't like that's going on. He said, I think in the story, these are his words, I think I mentioned before that some time ago my brother and I were driving one evening to Tennessee from Atlanta. He was driving the car. For some reason the drivers were very discourteous that night. They didn't dim their lights. Hardly any driver that passed dimmed their lights. And I remember vividly my brother looked over and in a tone of anger he said, I know what I'm going to do. The next car that comes along here and refuses to dim their lights, I'm going to fail to dim mine and pour them on in all of their power. And I looked at him right quick and said, oh no, don't do that. There'd be too much light on the highway and it will end up in mutual destruction for all. Somebody got to have some sense on this highway. Somebody got to have enough sense to dim their lights. And that is the trouble, isn't it? That as all of the civilizations of the world move up the highway of history, so many civilizations having looked at other civilizations that refuse to dim the lights and they decided to refuse to dim theirs. And Toynbee says that out of the 22 civilizations that have risen up, all but about seven have found themselves in the junk heap of destruction. It is because civilizations fail to have sense enough to dim their lights. And we all will end up destroyed because nobody had any sense on the highway of history. Somebody somewhere must have some sense, must see that force begets force, hate begets hate, toughness begets toughness, and it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have enough sense and morality to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe, and you do that by love.
so let's sit with that.